and welcome to the 28th edition of the Simulate Podcast. Over the last few months, we have been taking a trip down memory lane, looking at some of the films of Oscar's past in our Oscar Rewind season. We've tackled stellar, outstanding years like 1976 and 1994. We've been rubbing shoulders with the glitterati and films that will stand the test of time. But now we thought it was time to get down and dirty in the gutters of Hollywood and explore some of the worst movies of all time. Yesterday, we are looking at the history of the Golden Raspberry Awards, better known as the Razzies. My name is Adam Marsh, and as ever, I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. Hello, Daryl. How are you? Hi, Adam. I'm good, thanks. I'm really looking forward to this because we've, we've been talking about some great movies recently and what a chance to talk about some uh, rubbish ones. So. <laughs> and to help us in our task, however, we have brought in some ringers. We are delighted to welcome onto the show Johan and Edward from the excellent Trash Tapes podcast. How are you guys? Honoured to be here. <laughs> so excited. I am so excited to be, to be here. This is, this, this, is, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I've, des- I've been built to do. So dead ready to go through the, the long, long list that I have here. It's long. It's, it's quite big. It's like several pages. So <laughs> he's, he's made notes, folks. He's, we, we've just oh, been shown the notebooks. So. <laughs> do you want to just talk about a little bit what you guys do on your trash tapes, Jack? Because from what it looks like, it sounds like it's Johan forcing Edward to watch loads of really bad movies. <laughs> that is exactly what it is, basically. Um, so, yeah, I am the host of the Trash Tapes podcast where I purposely go around, try and find infamously bad films, cult movies, really obscure stuff. And then I just throw it over to Edward and say, hey, watch it. We need to talk about this. And most of the time, and most of the time he enjoys it. There's some which he absolutely hates, and I revel in that. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it's now evolved a bit. It feels like sometimes it's equal pegging. Sometimes it's like learning, like almost like a sensei, just learning again from again the apprentice now comes over and say, oh, I have found this sensei. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is great. So he's learning now from me. So he's uh, he's evolved. The student has become the teacher. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I started out with like pretty much no knowledge of bad movies. And now I am literally uh, the Luke Skywalker of bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's impressive. It's very impressive. And Luke's Luke's made a few as well, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, before we get into the nitty gritty of the individual films, what what are you guys' thoughts on the very existence of the Razzies? I guess I mean, do do does the world deserve an award ceremony for bad movies? Uh, I think yes. I think it actually does. I feel like the way the Razzies are done, realistically, I like what it's what it's trying to do which is put a mirror up at like the Oscars and the Globes and Globes and say, hey, hey, look at you. you these movies aren't that great. So what we're going to do, we're going to show you all the rubbish ones you've done throughout the year. Hollywood has not been great the entire year. And it's good. I like the concept of that. But as the years have gone on, uh, I feel like it's not, I think it's now just become very cheap a little bit. I think it, it could have been a bit more, bit more angsty a little bit more punky i guess but it's now it's now just an excuse to like to say like madonna's terrible for example or how no one likes john travolta so it's kind of become just a bit a bit mean really i mean i would say that anyone who actually is a fan of bad movies uh, would definitely put different movies up in a competition like in, a, in an award ceremony for bad movies because mm. You know, there are so many great cult movies that are bad movies that should be celebrated, in my opinion. But that's the thing. Is it is that is the Razzie supposed to be celebrated or is it just saying like, hey, these movies are rubbish? 
And so if they're supposed to be celebrated, then we would have things like The Room, for example, be, be nominated, or we would have some, or we have some very infamously terrible B movies that would be on there, but they're not, they're not yeah. celebrated. I, I think uh, I think the room's a great example of what the Razzies get wrong because they they when when they're sort of doing their nominations they tend they tend to focus on you mentioned Madonna and John Travolta and so on if you look back at the history of the Razzies that used to be um, Bo Derek and Piers Adora who are sort of forgotten <laughs> now you know but there's all there's always these personalities that are in the media that get focused on as oh if they're in a film it must be bad you know and and in focusing on that sort of thing and in focusing on the stuff that gets press attention um they tend to overlook the things that sort of sneak in under the radar like the room and it's only years later that they sort of pick up on those and if if they do like a sort of retrospective award they might give it something like that but yeah it, it, it does seem to be this sort of cult of personality thing in in reverse that 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 works often for for the Razzies. It was interesting that they started in 1980 because that was the year that uh, the Medved brothers published their infamous um, Golden Turkey Awards book. So there's a nice dovetail there. So the Medveds did their book on the history of bad films up to 1980, and then suddenly the Razzies guys come along. And they're sort of almost taking the baton and, and telling us about the future, you know. It's, yeah. I, I find it an interesting one where it's like if it truly wanted to be a bad movie award, it mm. probably wouldn't have lasted the test of time like it has and become uh, gone into public awareness of the, as the Razzies because bad movies, properly bad movies, are incredibly dull. You know, yes. they're, they're terrible movies. You don't want to watch those movies. Yeah, this is all about fun, bad movies. Isn't That's it? right. We'll and I think sometimes with this award, it's quite schizophrenic. And sometimes it gets that and it nominates the movies that are that are bad, but fun to watch. And, you, and you're sitting there thinking, what are they thinking when they're making this movie? And then mm. you watch it then, and then they'll go for a few years where they just nominate bad Adam Sandler movies or something like that, where it's just like, well, we know what they were thinking. They were thinking they were making a comedy. It's just not very funny or whatever, you know. Yeah, this is what I was saying. Eventually leads to what's considered to be easy targets. They, and the problem is, you, you, then, then it gets to a moment, I think they got an award on this, which I believe is the Razzie Redeemer Award. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, basically, it's like, oh, you've actually done a good job. Congratulations. You no longer need a Razzie anymore. We've kind of revoked it. Eddie Murphy's made a good movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, yes, yeah, so especially for the ones they've poked fun on for like nearly a decade. And then they pull off one good movie and say, oh, you're fine now. And it's like, that is, that's not fair. That's really bad bullying, <laughs> you know? Well, that's basically what this is, isn't it? It's it, it just <laughs> a decades long bullying of Hollywood A-listers. Mm. But the, but there are I would say as we go through the years I will I can go over and say yeah some of these are justified yeah that is actually pretty bad what they've come up with it's just that now people forget the ones which are legitimately like bad and just pick the ones that they poke fun of I guess yeah okay well let's get into it then that we'll, we'll, I said we'll, we'll take these in sort of like five or six year chunks mm. rather than borrowing down to over here all we'll be here all we're here longer than we need to be talking about <laughs> bad movies really but uh so if we if we look at the first like 80 to 1985 mm-hmm. we've got uh and focusing mainly around uh the worst picture films because and then we can spin off if any, anything interesting outside of that but mm. we, we start with 10 nominees in the first year in 1980 which they very very quickly rounded back down to five in in 81 and and there have been five ever since oscars take note um (laughs) um, 
so they, so they started off in 1980 where we had um and and uh, well we had a village people musical winning worst movie of, of, of 1980 with uh, can't stop the music um a movie i hadn't seen before so i watched that this week and oh uh, rectified that and i thoroughly enjoyed it however <laughs> however it is like a really bad british sex movie uh, sex comedy so it's like yeah. a carry on movie or a, a confessions of movie where mm. it's not that funny and it's not that sexy um, <laughs> and it kind of just goes along at a pace the thing that really stood out for me in why this movie wasn't a success more than anything else whether the, the backlash towards the village people was kicking in by that point possibly you know they'd had their moment their five minutes etc but for me it was more the case of that this movie's 20 minutes into the film we've had two musical numbers in a village people musical and neither of them are by the village people Yeah, wow. which feels to me is a Terrible mistake. Yeah. If you make- although, although, Adam, the, the, the film is an ambitious two hours long, so they, they've got time to feel that out. I mean, you, you, you're touching all my bases there by comparing it to a British sex comedy, because, as you know, I love those. And uh, mm. um, uh, what, what I would say, um, the, the, this does the classic thing that pop, mu- pop music films do. They're always three years too late, you know, because of the time it takes the film business to sort of respond to anything and yes. to actually go into production and get things rolling and hire a director and get a script written. By the time it's all done and the cameras are rolling, nobody knows who the village people are. Nobody wants to see a movie about them. Now, in 1980, that was big news because it's like, why are they making a film about this this phenomenon from two years ago? You know, but you watch it now and it's got that, you, you forget all that and it's got yeah. that sort of nostalgic thing. It's like what we said about Spaceballs the other week. When Space <laughs> when, when Spaceballs came out, it was, why, why are they doing a Star Wars spoof 10 years too late? Has Mel Brooks lost it? You know, but you watch it now and you just think, Oh, it's it's a great Star Wars parody. Brilliant! You forget you forget that time lag. And what I would what I would say in defence of "Can't Stop the Music," I love it as well. Go on. And, um, I, I would say two things. Um, the 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 best picture winner at the Oscars that year was uh, Robert Redford's "Ordinary People." Now that hasn't got Valerie Perrine wearing a T-shirt that says "Macho Woman" on it. <laughs> And it's it's got it's got nothing like my favourite scene in Can't Stop the Music, which is the one where Glenn Hughes, with his massive handlebar moustache and all his leather gear and his big bike, tools up at the um, the finance office, gets off his bike. We think he's going in for the audition to to join Village People, and he reveals that he's there to talk about his tax returns, and he doesn't know anything about the band and then proceeds to stand on the piano and sing Danny Boy. Ordinary people, you cannot compete with that. Yeah, that is true. But I will I will throw something in there, speaking of things that are completely out of trend, and they, and they made a movie out of it. I need to talk about Xanadu, okay? Because speaking of other terrible musical movies, in that same year, by the sound of things as well, yeah. Xanadu is special to me because it is so misjudged and doesn't understand what it's trying to do. Because it's this is supposed to have been the uh, Olivia Newton-John's kind of, like, big grand opus thing. I am, this is my big solo project, right? Yeah, the, the, post, the post-Grease film, yeah, yeah. Yes, also this was Gene Kelly's 
technically last movie, which is such a sad thing to think about. Um, and also it's the fact that it's so misjudged because it's a movie about disco when disco died, right? Disco was dead by 1980. Everyone's moved on from disco. And the whole point of the movie is there is a Greek muse who goes down to earth to help an artist open a roller disco. It is so mismatchly random. And I think it's because it's so random that I love it to bits because it, it feels like literally like someone's trying to make a jigsaw puzzle out of seven different jigsaw puzzles and try to make something that looks good. Um, and the reason, and, and it, it's also very campy. And I think this for me is the pinnacle of what I think of when I think of the Razzies properly. It's a movie that is misjudged, makes absolutely no sense on its own, has dated itself terribly, but for some reason in that datedness, it has gone round full circle and has become just and has just become glorious again. <laughs> I think for me, one of those things that is I, I I want to like Xanadu more than I actually do. I'm watching, I'm thinking, mm. this is right on my street. I'm 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 relatively newly discovered love of musicals. I'm yeah. I'm well into Gene Kelly. I love Gene Kelly. I think the look with all the sort of like neon and disco style, uh, almost like synth. You know, it's like if it was like a synth film instead of a disco film, people would be all over this. It'd be like, oh, it's got <laughs> visuals of like the like a synth wave style thing. Um it's got all those things I really love. But it's just so boring. It's just so dull. And that's the worst thing about it. It's like unforgivably dull. It, and again, that's a, it's slightly the misjudged thing, which I kind of find funny. I look back at it now and it's like the musical numbers are half the musical numbers are done in one long take. <laughs> like they don't cut. And like the like the person, the director, uh, Robert, I think Robert Greenwood, I believe it is. Uh, he basically just didn't know how to shoot a dance number. The last 20 minutes of the movie, though, which is just a giant musical number, is flipping awesome. There's all the kinds of dancing and everything else is there. It's just an hour and 20 minutes beforehand. <laughs> So, so you've got Gene Kelly actually on set, and nobody thought of inviting one of the greatest dance directors of all time to actually get behind the camera and tell them how to do it. Nope. But it does start a trend of what the early Razzie years were about, music, musicals. They don't really like them. I think maybe they're out of fashion, so therefore they're, they're fighting to get any any musical made in that period. Yeah, well, Annie Annie got nominated in 1982 as well, so uh, yeah, yeah. So it is that sort of stage show. Let's let's put the show on right here, sort of thing. That old 1940s plot sort of came back around 1980, and the Razzies didn't like it. It was prime for them to to sort of have a go at. Yeah, yeah, and we had the pirate movie as well from 1982, <laughs> the Pirates of Penzance thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know they they really don't like musicals <laughs> so and that comes through strongly in this in this first few years you've got obviously you've got can't stop the music which has two great lines in it at least two great lines in it with the sort of the, the where they're trying to do the ad campaign where she says i want to make milk as glamorous as champagne it's a great line i love that <laughs> and then obviously glenn hughes and we've already singled him out but getting nervous before going on stage in san francisco leathermen don't get nervous leathermen don't get nervous <laughs> he he steals the show i mean you you were talking you were talking about village people not coming on for the first 20 minutes he doesn't come on until about half, after halfway the, through the movie and then absolutely yeah. steals the show you know every line's a, a zinger so um we also got the first appearance of bo derrick 
in 1981 oh, yes. with Tarzan, the ape man. And uh, they they nominate and re-nominate and re-nominate and re-nominate Bo Derek uh, repeatedly. Well, she she was she was in that sense she was the John Travolta of that era. Oh, it's so bad we're poking fun of even these people already. It's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the, a lot of these movies that we're talking about now get labelled under this under the under the banner of vanity projects. Mm. Sometimes you go, oh, it's a vanity project, as if that's immediately a bad thing. And often, but that was that was Bo's whole career, though. Exactly, was yeah. vanity. Just casting his wife in various states of undress throughout <laughs> the eighties. That was his thing. So, uh, moving on to nineteen eighty-two, it's an interesting one. Inchon won best mm. film. Mm. Now it's a movie I've not seen, but remarkably, it's a movie that's never been released on home video. Yeah, yeah. DVD or VHS. It's that bad. It never, <laughs> ever got a release on VHS. Yeah. Well, aren't there some kind of issues with that where it, it's all sort of tied up in, in sort of legal business or something? I, I've, I've not researched it enough to know, but uh, I, I at the back of my mind, I think there's something about it that... Probably uh, is, Daryl. I prefer my angle that it's so bad. That I'm going to run with it. I, I think it's now. a bit. I think it's a bit of both, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They use, they're using the legal stuff as an excuse. I think I think one of the things I'm just I'm just looking at the Wikipedia now. We literally one of the first things I've noticed is that after its release, uh, it was never it was never seen again. Basically, <laughs> Stacey says after it was never shown again in cinemas and was never released on video cassette or DVD. Wow, I know, crazy. It has had some television screenings, so there are versions out there in the world of it. So it's not like a hidden movie or a, a lost movie. In that you you can you can see it if you want to, but who Do wants really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just moving on to like 1983, uh, Pia Zadora finally wins, mm. nominated the previous year. They finally they finally get the knife in and, and finally land it in the back. Um, but we also got the first appearance of a company that I thought would be all over this these awards throughout the 1980s, and that's Canon Films. Mm. Yeah, first appearance of Hercules in, the, in, in in from Canon Films. You know, Hercules, the one where he throws a bear into space. You know, that kind of great <laughs> movie. Um, but, yeah, but I just think, oh, Canon made a, a, a string of terrible movies. You know, that, that was basically their thing. They made bad movies, rushed movies, ill-judged movies. And, um, you know, so I figured they'd be all over, but they're not really. I mean, yeah. if you look down the list, I, I think what happened there is they nominated them in 83. They um, they they won um, the, or if you can call it winning, I don't, I don't know what the term is for the Razzies, but they, they won the Worst Picture Award in 84 with another Bo Derek film, Bolero. And maybe maybe it was like, uh, you know, oh, we've, we've, we've sort of done canon now, you know, we'll, we'll leave them alone. And again, missing out on, on those sort of primo years when they were, they were just turning out these dreadful action movies one after the other and all the great films that we've, we've, we've seen clips of in the Canon documentary and so on. But yeah, maybe the Razzies thought, oh, we've, we've, we've done it. We've nominated them one year. We've given them the award the next. That's, that's. I, I, I think one thing I'll throw into that argument is that the ones with the Canon movies are also part of a bigger company. Like they, they kind of made it, but they were distributed by MGM. Yeah. yeah the sort of, cross-pollinated so because it's based off a bigger studio they can go and say oh we can mock that 
We're not going to mock the small indie guys because that's just unfair. Let's mock the big boys. And so if it's part of a, if it's come connected to a bigger studio, they feel less guilty. Like they feel less guilty. Although the one that Bo Derek won, that was just pure canon. So basically they just really don't like Bo Derek. But but they're not, not particularly typical of canon's output. You know, it's not, it's, it's not Bo Derek meets Chuck Norris, is it? So Although I'd, I'd, I'd pay to see that. But. <laughs> As a hostage on a plane being saved by a group of mercenaries, uh, a soldiers of fortune. There we go. Yeah, that'd be great. 985, you know, Mission in Action 4. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we get, there's a few, few interesting things um, we get around this, around this period. Burt Reynolds was having a struggling time at the box office that period. And he's, the, the smoky magic started to yeah. peter out here and we got stroke race now this this is prime stuff for the razzies it's it's someone who has been up at the top of the box office the top of hollywood and when they're on the slide they slide down onto this list right here yeah. it's basically they just like kicking someone when they're down that it's really like i said it's really yeah. mean when you say it like that but it is it's true it's true oh it is definitely punching down you know, as a sort of, they are punching down at these people. You, yeah. you made a terrible movie. You should be bad. Well, here's a little dig in the ribs for you as well, just to, to <laughs> round it off. Um, so yeah, so that's I mean, obviously, then Cannonball Run two gets criminally nominated the following year. I love mm. Cannonball, yeah. Cannonball yeah. movie. Um, and we get Rhinestone, and we got to talk about Rhinestone. And now that's this is the movie that uh, Sylvester Stallone turned a romance in the stone and Beverly Hills Cop passed on both of those movies. Yeah. Did Rhinestone and Cobra instead um, over, over the next couple of years? You know, <laughs> um, Cobra Cobra also got nominated as well. In, exactly. Uh, yeah. So he, in, that, well, they, in they that golden that year in, of '86. Um, well, were, well, Ed. It's well. We're speaking of Cobra quick before we go there. Ed, we did we did an episode of that, didn't we? And, yeah, uh, Cobra. Cobra is one of my favorite movies, and, and it's a weird kind of movie because it's like it is canon. But it's also Warner Brothers, isn't it? And it's kind of like, it's a shame that it's canon in a way because it's kind of, there's no canon logo on it. And we, and I really wanted to do this movie yeah. on, the, uh, on the podcast and I was pushing it to Johan for ages. You did, you did. Yeah. And then, and then as I researched it, I kind of realized that this is, this is literally Sylvester Stallone having the biggest ego trip in the history of ego trips, where the entire ending of a movie was changed because he, because there was a mosquito problem on set. And so he said, we got to leave this entire place to film somewhere else because I don't want to get hit by a mosquito. It's, yeah, this is why I'm thinking, like, I understand why some of these movies are nominated if you really delve deep into its production, because that is horrendous. You look at this and so Stallone, why did you turn down those two amazing movies and take the uh, the $5 million paycheck for Rhinestone? Gee, let me think, you know, <laughs> during that time, money was ruling and he, his ego was way out of control at that point. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but but speaking of Sylvester Stallone, the following year, Sylvester, the following year, nineteen eighty-five. I'm going to put this criminal what they've done here because they, they laid the boot in. Now they, they, they they've got yeah. their target and they 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 go for him in big style, don't they? With Rambo Part Two and yeah. Rocky Four. Rocky Four, yeah. The two, to arguably by fans, two of the best ones. Yeah. Rambo yeah. Two, interestingly, was I think the first winner of the worst film that was actually a box office hit 
that wasn't a movie that had flopped at the box office and they were going, oh yeah, Bo Derek stripping for a husband on a movie, kicking a boot in, you know, it's not, it's not Xanadu or, or, or um, Cancel the Music. It's, it's a movie that was a massive box office hit. Yeah. So that, that, that so was a major shift. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that switched. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's what increased the, uh, popularity of the Razzies around that period maybe taking aim at a bigger target a movie that was popular yeah if we move on sort of into the mid 80s and through to the early 90s then and 86 is your year Adam uh, we've, we've, year. We've, we've talked about Cobra but talk you talk about the two winners in 86 go on you because uh, I, I heard you like these two and this I want your defense moment. Uh, I, I don't know whether I have a defence, but I think Howard the Duck is one of the greatest 80s movies of all time. In the sense of that it, it, it embodies the 80s in its running time, in the sense of like, what Hollywood just doesn't know what they're doing anymore. They don't know how to make hits. They just, they're throwing everything at the wall and seeing what hits. So, so someone comes in, I want to make a movie about a, a four foot duck that gets plucked from another universe and brought to Cleveland. Oh, yeah, but great. Let's do that. Who knows? Who knows what's hits? They just don't know what's a hit anymore. They don't know what's going to land. You've got Ghostbusters being a big hit, but then Buckaroo Banzai wasn't a big hit. You know, you, you have all these movies where the pitching sessions, the, the executives at Hollywood don't know what they're doing. So and, and you just you just don't know what the audiences are going to respond to in a mass way either. So. Exactly, yeah. So you get, you know, why, why was Howard the Duck a flop, but E.T. was a hit? <laughs> well, one of them doesn't have duck boobs, so that's. I was why. just going to say duck exactly. boobs, but well, you beat me to it. I don't know why that's not a plus. We're talking pros and cons. That's a pro, isn't it? Duck boobs. Uh, but okay, well, uh, for me, for me, it's more a case of like Howard the Duck is not as bad a movie as people make it out to be. Mm. It's a coherent movie. It's quirky as hell, and it's very eighty. I mean, the, the, it's it's, a, it's supposed to be for kids. I think it's supposed to be for kids. But he gets a job in a brothel. It's got duck boobs in it. You know, it's it's got very unusual adult tendencies. Obviously, coming from the source material of the comics, which were definitely skewed older. Mm-hmm. And then the movie was made by Lucasfilm, which were making younger skewing films it had that weird dynamic where you don't know whether it's who is who is who is the audience other than me who is the audience <laughs> this movie? you know who I loves think, this movie I, yeah, don't I, think, I think tonally it reminds me of the the, the 90s teenage mutant ninja turtles movie because it's got the similar kind of costumes with like limitation like the you know the animatronic yeah, costumes yeah. It's got similar yeah. sort of technology involved and also, it doesn't know who its audience is because it's quite the teenage the 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 turtles movie was quite violent, wasn't it? And not yeah. really for kids in a way. And it's the same kind of like parallels, in my opinion. So, so Ed, Edward, you're 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 saying that Howard the Duck is is ahead of its time, then? Definitely, yes. <laughs> wow, talk about spin. Um, I think what, what I think the, the big difference between is that this turtles was a massive hit. Yeah, <laughs> it was a massive well, hit. Well, because well, it's again, turtles. Who, who, who knew? Who and knew? I, but I think I think one of those things where with with this with with Howard is like it felt more like George Lucas has had too much success, so we're going to go for him now. And it this, this like is the year we kick him. Yeah, yeah. This is the year we we give him a kicking, uh, and that that. That's I guess I guess that's why it became the worst movie of all time. Now now what what makes what makes eighty six your big year, Adam? Is it's the first year that the Razzies have a joint winner, and mm-hmm. the the other film is also one of yours. It is. 
I'm a huge Prince fan, and I am, for honour of the day, I am wearing my uh, Under the Cherry Moon T-shirt um, for this. So, <laughs> but yeah, Under the Cherry Moon, Prince's follow-up to the mega success of Purple Rain. You know, Prince in 1984 had uh, the number one single, the number one album, and the number one movie in the same weekend. Mm. That's a massive, massive hit. The movie, the movie sold ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, the the album sold tons, and it established Met Prince as a megastar. Scroll forward a couple of years, and then uh, this is where I was talking about vanity projects. Purple Rain, in many ways, is a vanity project. It's mm. Prince mm. trying to establish himself as a megastar and taking control over pretty much every area of music production acting everything he's in control of it to get his vision of who he wants the public to see as, as him to cross over from the black music radio stations of the early 80s that where he was ghettoized there cross over into the mainstream he's already had a big hit album with 1999 now is the time to to really cross over and it's a massive vanity project. The acting's a bit iffy, but the music performances are so stellar that it gets through. I mean, it's like 45 minutes of music in, in a 90-minute movie, you know, Purple Rain. So it kind of gets through the sort of like iffy acting um, because of the, the power of the performance. Mm. <laughs> well, for me, I think the power, the power of Prince is on stage. Cause it's, it's yeah. On yeah. stage. It's not like incidental music or him recording in a recording studio. It's him performing. And that's what, that's what gripped people. That's what people wanted to see. They saw mm. this megastar on screen and they, they bought in. They bought in big. And yeah. then you go forward a couple of years to Under the Cherry Moon and then you get another vanity project and it's the bad side of vanity projects, I guess. Um, whereas this movie, you, you're sitting there thinking, Prince has made this movie for himself. There's no, I want to cross over into a bigger <laughs> area. I'm making a black and white movie. Yeah, it's black and white, period. Black <laughs> <laughs> uh, bang in the middle of the MTV period. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Colour and fast edit. He's making a homage to a, 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 like a 1930s Bob Hope buddy movie. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's an odd decision. Obviously, he loves those kind of movies and that's why he's making it. Mm. Um, but it, it, it it's not a great, it's not a great it's not a great film. I'm, I'm glad you at least admitted it's not a great movie. It's not because... a great movie. But equally, equally, that said, the soundtrack's amazing. And the soundtrack gets nominated for Worst Razzies. And it's like, come on, come That's on. Like, I understand yeah, that isn't fair. you're having a pop of prints now, but nominating the soundtrack. Yeah, I think it's basically it's just saying, oh, we, we've no, we, we've nominated him for the movie. We might as well put the soundtrack in there to give it a full package situation. Yeah, I think that's it, yeah. So we get into another another chunk of years. Now this is this is I guess this this is the the, the full on eighties blockbuster years where we're looking at uh, eighty seven through to the early nineties. I guess where we're getting. Yeah, we've done the the two Oscar podcasts recently where we picked nineteen seventy six and nineteen ninety four as examples of two stellar years at the Oscars, and we've almost got the Razzie equivalent in eighty seven because we've got Tough Guys Don't Dance, Who's yeah. That Girl. Jaws the Revenge, Ishtar, and they were all beaten by Leonard Part Six. So there's there's a golden year of bad movies for you. Any one of those might have won the Razzie in another year, but here they are all nominated together. I'm very surprised that Jaws Revenge didn't win because, you know, this time it was personal, 
right? Like the sh- <laughs> yeah. it was yeah. it was personal. I'm thinking like, oh no, the sharks can't actually do it's personal this time. Oh god, why is it why has that, that not won? But still, yeah, yeah. it's uh... the the, comp- the competition was just too tough, I think. Um, you know, what what a year, what a year. Were, were, were there any good films in 87, I wonder? Because there's none on here. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's move on from that year, shall we, then? Um, but <laughs> well, yeah, it was definitely Miami Connection, Johan, in 87. It was Miami Connection, was that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that, that, that's a classic, but that would never be nominated. It's been the light of day for another 20 years, though, didn't it? So, no. That's the problem. A lot of the movies that we would think that would be perfect if anyone actually cared... Or, but, or it was done by a bigger studio. Yeah, 100%. That Miami Connection would have been there, would have been a legacy that's now it would have been more than that, but it's not the case here. Uh, but I'm looking more into the next year because 1988, we've got one movie that we just covered in the episode of the podcast that uh, I, I think we need to talk about. Um, I yeah. think I, I'm assuming that's Mac and Me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before we get on to Mac and Me, um, I, this is this, the winner of this year's world is the first uh, is Cocktail starring yeah. Tom Cruise now when I went in this just thinking blindly I figured well the way that they go for big stars and they nominate big stars and they, they have a good pop I figured Tom Cruise would be all over this no but he's not this is like literally his only nomination yeah mm. you'd, you'd think his ego would, would be perfect for, for razzy attention yeah maybe he's managed his career so well yeah maybe maybe they can only go after one scientologist and they've gone for travolta (laughs) oh no i think i think this was the time anyway that tom cruise wasn't really doing like the big ego thing he only became the big ego thing like by the late by the late 90s early noughties where he's now jumping on the couch kind of thing so before then i think it was like oh look he's done up he says one. he's fine we like tom cruise he's fine He's all right. Wait, let's see if he does another one. And he never does another one, really. And it's not another one that's suitable for this list. So, no, absolutely. So, okay, let's get on to let's get on to um, Mac and me then. I think Ed needs to talk about this because um, he he had nearly a mental breakdown in the episode. Like he nearly he nearly uh, it gave me chills, which was so exciting as the host of the show. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about this, if you look at the the uh, the wins for this film. It's like director and like Ronald McDonald as <laughs> an actor. And I, I think that's not really fair because the, we, as we dis- discovered in our podcast, the real kind of villain in this movie was the producer, wasn't it, Johan? Yeah, uh, RJ Lewis. He is, he's the bad guy in this movie. Not, not. Ronald McDonald, but they used they used Ronald McDonald as sort of like the scapegoat. <laughs> it's like ah, no, it wasn't him. McDonald is the problem. Who's the spokesperson? <laughs> yeah, the director was just brought in, like you know, is is a job. Like we need a director, just like you, you'll do, kind of thing. <laughs> and he got the he got the nominate, he got the win. <laughs> Sad. Well, you know, it was it was it was a it was a greed is good year. You know, win Wall Street win the best Oscar that year. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Same. Perfect, perfect, perfect counterbalance. Yeah, exactly. Perfect counterbalance. So, um, but yeah, I've not seen the film. I, I, I thought I had, but I don't think I have. But I can see why it was made. You know, in the, in the middle of Gremlins boom. It's true. Uh, I would I, I honestly, I wouldn't recommend it unless you are very ready to have your childhood destroyed. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> So again, we start again, again. We, we plow through. We get another Stallone nomination with Lockup. We get Karate Kid three and Star Trek five nominated. We also get Roadhouse in nineteen eighty nine, one of my favorite bad movies. Um, 
yeah, just a ridiculous movie um, that everyone should try and see. And it's a lot of fun. That, for me, is one of those movies that probably should win. As much as I love it, you know, it should win because it's it's it's, it's a bit naff. It's ridiculous. And it's it's got some ridiculous moments. He pulls a man's throat out with his fist. You know, it's like... Yeah. He has sex so on really uncomfortable though, rocks. In this movie, you know, it's just very uncomfortable sex scene in it as well. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just odd. It's an odd movie, and the, which for me is perfect. It's perfect for a trash movie. You think, what the hell yeah. are they thinking? I, I yeah, I, I think we don't need anything to add to Roadhouse. Roadhouse is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> Roadhouse is perfect. Never were those words spoken uh, before. Um, <laughs> In, into <laughs> in, into into the nineties, we've yeah. got uh, we've got Prince again nominated for Graffiti Bridge, but we've yeah. got Bo we've got Bo Derek still winning it. So uh, Bo Derek after, after all these years, she's still still in there. So she's like the Meryl Streep of bad movies. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Poor her. Yeah, this was this was a, a finale in in the nominations. Though this is the last time she was nominated and won. But uh, the, again, another dual winner that year for best picture. Uh, worst yeah, picture. yeah, with um, the Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Yes, the Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which I watched recently. Uh, I've for, never heard of it before. What? How is it? This is Andrew Dice Clay's um, star <laughs> vehicle. I guess is the way is is the way of looking. Andrew Dice Clay, the very famous. Um, rock star comedian of the late 80s got his break on um well he'd been doing stand-up routines for, for years got his big break on the rodney dangerfield um hbo special um nothing goes right where he shared this yeah, yeah it, rodney dangerfield brings on a bunch of comedians from his um his uh comedy club in new york and gives them eight minutes to to, to shine basically a very successful series of comedy specials in the 80s this comedy special had Andrew Dice Clay in his sort of like um, misogynistic style comedian character. Mm. And you had Bill Hicks on the same bill, uh, which is like you couldn't get two more um, diametrically opposed comedians or visions of what comedy is on the same stage. Um, Both of them went on to have a big success. Um, Dice Clay in literally in 89 sold uh, half a million copies of his his comedy album. Wow. He was a megastar. He got banned from MTV. He did three minutes set on the MTV Movie Awards and then was banned from MTV until 2011. Wow. So he was quite, quite outrageous. He was going to appear on Saturday Night Live and one of the cast members refused to, to, to perform alongside him because of his uh, sexism. And uh, Sinead O'Connor pulled out from performing on that same, on that same episode. So he was, he was fairly controversial, but massively popular at that time as well. Yeah. Um, and this movie is one of those movies where I wish... It's right up my street. I love these kind of like detective movies, 80s detective movies where, you know, it's, it's, it's got a quirk. So he's a rock and roll detective. He investigates crimes around the music press or with rock stars or, or soul singers or whatever. Um, and everything about this movie is great, apart from him. Um, oh. him out of the movie and his character the sort of like uh, the sexist or, or misogynistic character out of the movie and plug in ooh, literally anybody else in that role and then change the character to fit them it would be a 10 times better movie um it's it's got some great 
cameos from some of those people that we love seeing in movies. It's got David Patrick Kelly uh, from The Warriors in it um, and Twin Peaks. It's got Gilbert Godfrey in it, who's great in it. It was also nominated for the worst supporting actor in this movie. It's got... <laughs> To continue the Prince connection, it's got Morris Day and Sheila E in there, and it's got Robert Englund doing the thickest English accent you can find. <laughs> For a reason, I have no idea why. <laughs> he's just doing it. Um, and he's like full-on villain mode. And you have Ed O'Neill playing a disco police detective. That's amazing. Disco police detective, well oh, done. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah who's, who's got a grudge against Ford Fairlane because he um, ruined his disco career. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, see, as I'm talking, it sounds great. <laughs> he's just so horrible in the lead. He's just so horrible. It's just like because obviously they work in bits of his routines, and it's so it, it, it was bad at the time, but now it stands out like a frigging sore thumb. You know, it's literally horribly sexist comedy. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not good at all. I've already yeah. talked way too longer on this movie than I should have. I feel like as a curiosity, I need to see this, but I'll, uh, I'm not sure whether it's a good idea or not. So I'll put that in the back burner of my DVD collection. It's got some interesting bits. I mean, one, it's funny, one of the screenwriters, Daniel Walters, um, he, he, he had, he's, he's a double, double Razzie winner. He won the Razzie for script, screenwriting, for script writing this film and Hudson Hawk. Well... Adam, you keep mentioning Hudson Hawk, so I've got to talk about <laughs> Hudson Hawk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is it. like, a, this is another passion project movie for Bruce Willis. And he's like, he's really trying to show off his musical side in Hudson Hawk. Because uh, I don't think people really took his music seriously. That He really wanted to be a musician, I think. But he yeah. kind of like slotted that into this movie. But he's like, yeah, he's like a master cat burglar, isn't he? That like synchronizes his exploits by sort of memorable songs like uh, Swinging on the Star by Bing Crosby. And it's you'd think that'd be enough for a movie as a concept, but you've got like conspiracy theories in there. You've got like secret societies. You've got like clock punk technology in there. There's just too much in that movie. It's crazy. It's- this is an interesting one. Have you, have you guys read the uh, Richard E. Grant's diaries with nails? No. No, no, I haven't. You should read that now because he does. It's basically his on-set diaries from every movie he did from '87 through yeah. the mid '90s when he published it, and he does a whole section on Hudson Hart, which is absolutely fascinating oh, on how right. a movie can go wrong. <laughs> basically, where you have a a movie star of, of of Bruce Willis's level at that time, you know, coming off the, of, of two, you know, two Die Hard movies, mm. like. Look who's talking movies were a big hit. You know, he was he was fair, he was a fairly big name at that time. I have lots mm-hmm. of clout. And then you had a megastar movie producer of Joel Silver. Yeah. And then you had poor director Michael Lehman in between uh, of Heather's fame in between the two, <laughs> trying to meditate okay. the mediate the two two massive influences. And you get all manner of craziness in this movie. Yeah, it sounds like with Hudson Hawk, it is another one. Again, another vanity project. This is Bruce Willis trying to say, hey, do you remember the time I was a musician? Do you remember that album I did a while ago? Do you remember that? Well, I really like that more. I really like that. And I want you guys to remember it. So I'm going to do my singing. I'm making this a musical number in a weird situation. But also, yeah, it's also a weird conspiracy action movie with with a very creepy pair of siblings, which I'm not going to get into. Um, But uh, yeah, it's clashing of heads again. I think also you got to think about Bruce Willis at that time. He'd had had Die Hard as a big hit. 
yeah. but he wasn't necessarily known as being an action star. You know, he'd done Die Hard, massive hit, done Die Hard 2 in your sequel, but he was he'd done Moonlighting and Blind Date yeah. as well, and they were yeah. both hits. Yeah. So there was still this, this there was lingering thing. It's like he's a comedy guy as well. He can do light comedy. He can do that kind of caper movie. And I think some of this is just him still trying to find his slot mm. as a leading man in Hollywood. Because, you know, he did more thoughts around this period as well, which, again, didn't land and which you thought would have done because he had Bruce Willis, big star, Demi Moore coming off Ghost. You know, you thought, OK, that's going to be a big hit. That didn't land either. In Country didn't land. You know, there's there's a few misfires around this period where you're not quite sure what what is his thing? What is his thing? You know, Arnie's a big star. Stallone does movies. You know, what is Bruce Willis's thing? Yeah, it took a while to find it, I think. Until I think it's only until about the third Die Hard. Is it? Oh, he's oh, he's actually an action guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think also the uh, Pulp Fiction as well. Yeah. I think it was okay. You can go from doing uh, slightly more highbrow acting roles in Pulp Fiction, yeah, and uh, and and these silly action movies, I guess. But comedy drifted away, and he's not really done much comedy. The whole Nine Yards, I guess. Uh, early 2000s um, but he's not really focused on that which at the start of his career you would have thought would have been much more of a bigger part yeah which is why that if you look at any Bruce Willis interview nowadays he looks so tired he looks like he's so done he looks like he's like I, I, I you still thinking of the time like I was a musician once I used to play the harmonica and it was the best time of my life why am I doing this bull red too why am I doing red too just need paying and he has to do the tax yeah. he's one of those actors that doesn't play a character anymore he just plays bruce willis now doesn't he yeah i think yeah. i think he's just tired it's a shame but one on that year just gonna do one brief notice um speaking of music uh, musical movies in a weird way uh cool as ice um there was there was the vanilla ice movie clearly this was on the hot this was this you know when it says like they're trying to capture a trend this was hot this was so hot it was cool as ice because at that time the you know vanilla ice just was the big was kind of the weird one hit wonder big thing and said we're gonna have to capture you quick we're gonna put you into a movie quickly even if it doesn't at all suit you (laughs) in any shape or form and it's a weird sort of like romance which is very peculiar and it's it's and also the colors or the outfits are so gaudy and loud it's it's kind of special to see him try um 91 you know in in that respect you know he's shot him wearing a shell suit um you know he pretty much embodies that kind of thing but you also get that kind of that kind of music movie with vanilla rice you've had it with prince and then we get it later on with like uh, glitter with mariah carey and crossroads with britney spears you get those movies um periodically i think i think what he's almost trying to say the razzies are trying to say is pop stars stay in your lane don't make movies you do the music thing because you're good at that. We, no, no, movies ain't your thing. Go away. There you have ambitions beyond your station. Arguably, 91 is probably the last year where you get those those kind of sort of like odd, yeah. eccentric, odd movies. <laughs> I can't explain them any better. Um, after that, you start getting much more punching at Hollywood stars, you get the um, shining through Melanie Griffith being nominated and winning, you know, you've got um, the bodyguard, massive, massive success, terrible movie. Again, it's it's all, it's all big studio stuff with, with big names in the lead where, where, where the Razzies 
feel like they they need to have a go. And looking back before, Whitney Houston, pop star, oi, you stop getting into movies, you. Yeah. And then after that, we start seeing another pattern that comes through in in, in the the bias of of the Razzies. They don't like sex. They don't like it. (laughs) Put them away. It's naughty. So throughout the 90s, we get Indecent Proposal, Demi Moore. We get yeah. Body of Evidence nominated in 1993, uh, Madonna's movie. We get Slither, uh, Sharon Stone's follow-up to Basic Instinct. 94, we get Color of Night winning, uh, Bruce yeah. Willis again. Um, we get Showgirls in Showgirls. 1995. Yes! Yeah, yeah. Showgirls! We get Tease in 1996. <laughs> no, it, it, it's one after the other. Every year, there is a movie that was sold on the sex angle, I guess. Yeah, where well, the main focus is sex. Like, it is either, like, here's a celebrity taking their bits out mm-hmm. or doing or doing something about the sex industry or being kinky or anything. It's Again, it's almost surprisingly conservative when you generally would think that something like the Razzies would almost, if it was supposed to be, like, praising bad films, would be embracing this and yeah, saying, hey! Yeah. yeah, striptease, showgirls, a classic with the... It's basically, it's a pool sex scene that looks like they're having sex like a dolphin. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah the, the Showgirls is, has become has become that cult movie of the 90s, hasn't it? You know, that kind yeah. of, um, we've had documentaries about it with a You Don't Know Me. You know, we've had late night, midnight screenings of it for years and years and years. It's become the cult movie now. It's, it's still a terrible movie. It's terrible, but it's... Terrible again, it's in one, an epic sense, you know. It's, it's, yeah. it's quotable. Like, yeah, still, yeah. There's some, one of my favourite lines is like, is like, everybody's got AIDS and shit. It's like, goodness gracious! <laughs> Where did that come from? Okay! <laughs> right, all right, we'll run with this. It, same realm as The Room and stuff like that. Yeah, Showgirls. That's it, that. it's, it is. It's, it's, it's one of those terrible movies that, that's got an audience. There's There are people that mm. love it and will come out to see it whenever it's shown, so... Uh, so yeah, wh- um, why do we think striptease hasn't got that audience? Because I love striptease. I think maybe maybe it's just not as bad a movie as people think. And I think, mm. I think basically it was sold on the Demi Moore striptease bit. Yeah, from a Razzie's point of view, it's that's another focused star kicker. It's let's have a go at Demi Moore, whereas Showgirls is more... We're having a go at the subject matter and the fact that it's it's dreadful, you know, and it yeah. just doesn't work. And it's it's got all these strange lines and strange scenes in it. And uh, there's 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 more to sort of aim at there. There's more to aim at for, from a Razzie point of view. And there's more for an audience to sort of latch on to, I think. Whereas striptease is is much more sort of star focused. I guess so. I think it's like looking at some of the ones from that from that bracket of the year from 1995 onwards, where the you look at you look at other big famously bad movies that are there, or at least famous flops like Waterworld is in there, yeah. uh, The Island of Doctor Moreau, and all this kind of stuff. Those ones have some of these. Well, Island Doctor Moreau is a different thing, and that's on the list, by the way. Uh, so we are watching the said, but um, Waterworld. Um, not really a bad movie. It's just famously just a flop because it costs so much. Yeah. Mm. But it's also it's not quirky enough. It's not weird enough. Uh, Iron Doctor Moreau, other than just a weird buckethead situation, it's not really that weird. It could have been weirder. Okay, so let's let's move on because then we we start getting into uh, the category of big budget crazy movie flops now uh, yeah. from like ninety seven onwards. We get like 
the postman um, winning. That goes where Waterworld did, you know, exactly. it actually, it's, it's an achiever. It's a Razzie achiever. Yeah. 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 But you also get Batman and Robin that year. And how oh. that <laughs> win. Oh, it's a soft spot in my heart for Batman oh, and Robin. so bad. I mean, I came out of that movie being a big Batman fan. Came out of that movie and just thinking Batman's dead because they're never going to be able to resurrect Batman on the big screen ever. <laughs> well, they, well, they did it for a while. They didn't do it well, for a it long wasn't time. That long, it was like five years, six years, something like that. You know, which is an eternity. That's a long time nowadays. Um, yeah. Back then, though, it was like you know, um, and then and then they had to go the super urban grit and gritty. Uh, they had to clean off the sheen that was the camp on that movie. But again, uh, Batman and Ron, we did an episode of that one, and we and we realized the reason why we like that movie is because if you watch, because I remember, we remember it more like when we were a kid when we were watching it on the VHS when we were like 10 and we're sitting there going, like, oh my goodness, yeah, there's, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger. We don't care about the line. You know, there's Mr. Freeze is there. We know Poison Ivy's there and everyone's jumping around in latex and we just had a whale of a time. Looking back at it now, when you get old, you're going, oh, this is, this is bad. But then if you put, if you just put on, if you just, if you just let it, let all the flying colors of Joel Schumacher just take you over, it will be like a giant hug that's full of ice puns. About 27 ice puns, according to... Uh, yeah, according to I, I was 21 when I saw yeah, it. I mean, so I'm like, no chance, mate. You got no leeway on see, this. See, now. that's a difference. The, the, that's wrong, a difference. the wrong age. Yeah, yeah. Wrong age yeah, the it. Joel Schumacher Batman films have aged very well, though. In terms of if you if if you sort of mind Johan's age, they kind of like you go back and revisit the cheesy Batman films more than you do the gritty ones, in my opinion. So, like, so moving on, we get Alan Smithy film winning the next year, which feels a bit weird. Yeah, now now that yeah that's strange because the other the other nominees yeah. again all all look like Spice shoe-ins. World. Spice World was nominated and win. Well, they hate pop stars. We've already established that they hate pop stars. Yeah. But then, it, but, but then they should. Then Spice World should have won. Then. Yeah, but then we get Godzilla as well. So, so is the fact that that wins against the competition there? Is is that a sort of anti anti Hollywood anti movie business thing, or, or what's what's going on there? I don't know. I think I, I think in a weird way it's so. I think again, I think they're trying to remember what the Razzies meant which was yeah, we're poking yeah. fun of Hollywood. We're poking yeah. fun of them and we're saying like, you know, we have to remind us, it's almost like reminding everyone, hey, the glitz and glam of Hollywood don't exist. A lot of, you know, they also do rubbish too. They do trash as well. And I think that movie is just almost a way of just cementing the idea, I guess. Like they do a lot of like representative nominations. I think it was like, it's been a few years since we had Stallone nominated. What's he done this year? Oh, he's done this movie. Let's nominate him again. Yeah, let's sit the boot in. You know, a good few years when Stallone's done a bad movie. That's that's nailing. Quite a shame. Yeah, he did that Copland film where he tried to act right. We're having him. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you try and act? Oh no, poor Stallone. He was great in that. Come on, he was was great. Copland was fantastic, but like, you know. They don't like oh, it. You know, you no. your lane again. No, no, stay stay in your box. Yeah. <laughs> stay in your we, lane. We 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 like you making bad films. So. Yeah. This is exactly what it is. Um uh, moving on to the next few years after that. Um Yeah, there's two really big I mean the, the next one, Wild Wild West one in nineteen ninety-nine, which was Will Smith's first flop. He was mm-hmm. a megastar. But I would argue that this movie doesn't flop because of Will Smith. 
it kind of yeah. flops in spite of the immense effort he is going to instill some sort of charisma and enjoyment and fun to this movie. You know, it's it's not mm. quite... Um... Oh, totally. I mean, the script is awful, but like Will Smith and Kevin Klein, they, they can make anything funny. So they their performance is is great, and it's it's got a lot of daft kind of jokes in that can kind of work as well, you know. Like um, Will Smith like plays the bongos on a woman's boobs, thinking it's Kevin Klein in drag, and uh, and it's it's just got a lot of like really. I mean, Roger Ebert said it was like the the special effects were like watching money burn before your eyes on screen, but it's it, I don't know. I, I revisited this one. This is one I did watch, and I had so much fun watching this movie. It's mm. it kind of fits in that 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 fun Wild West kind of period fits into like my memories of going to the American Adventure theme park <laughs> in Dar. So it's kind of like it's just that I think that's why it's special to me. Basically, I think with this movie, uh, the only thing I got out of this movie is look, I, I like the movie actually in a weird way. It's not aged well. It's for many reasons, but I like it. The only thing I would say is that this movie felt more like Will Smith was doing a favor for the director because he did because the same director did Men in Black, right? Yeah, and say, like, oh, that was a hit. So it's so when the director went over to him saying, "Hey, I'm going to try and adapt uh, Wild Wild West, a TV show. I'm going to adapt it. I would love to have you on it, Will. You know you wanna." And Will sort of like, it's like, oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I was offered the Matrix. I mean, that could have been a thing for me. But then it's like, oh, come on, please. For your old pal, your buddy, you get to wear a, you wear, wear a cowboy hat. And it's like, sure, great, we'll run with it. And so it felt, it's, it feels a little bit like this was more like him doing a favor and saying, oh, it worked for them. I worked with him last time. I made a great hit. It worked this time. It didn't. So it feels, it's for me, even though I watch it, I do feel like it's a little hollow a bit because yeah, it's Will Smith. It feels like this is where he's cashed in. Yeah. in a sort of like you know i've done men in black it was a big hit i've done independence day it was a big hit and now i'm taking that big 10 million dollar paycheck or whatever the movie paid i'm taking that what you got for me and we've got this movie we're going to re-team you with barry sonnenfeld we're going to make this movie we're going to put kevin klein in salma hike it's going to be fantastic you know and i can see at that time there was a lot of these sort of like big budget experience movies you know where it was ridiculous effects and uh this one uh, was just part of that that run, I guess. It has a giant spider in the third act. Yes, um, and that's yeah, the I mean, thing. I mean, it's the steampunk thing. Yeah, it that. brought steampunk into the mainstream. That's an important thing, you know. We well, you say that, but uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith. And so I know the story about the giant spider in the third act, uh, because that was supposed to be in the failed Superman movie. And so it was, same, it was the same producer. So the same producer was able to niggle to say, I really want a giant spider in the third act. And so, again, this is why I feel like now that I know that story, that made this that entire thing seem extra hollow, because it's just now just... It's it's no longer made for the fans. It's now made for this crazy ass producer who really just wants certain things done. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think with the Wild Wild West TV series, I don't think I don't think anyone in 1999 was sitting there thinking, oh, they're not being true to the spirit of the Wild Wild West TV show. From <laughs> this years is ago, true. You know? like no I think it was just it was just a weird. They, they went through a run of making these like rehashes of old TV series that. Mm ultimately the fan base was not the fan base that was going to watch the movies like the avengers the previous year you know as much as the fans of the avengers were still alive um you know who watched it originally and they were and they hated this movie but they weren't the people who were going to the cinema they're not the people who are they're not the 18 year olds the the the, the 10 to 30 year olds that that hollywood fed off 
So, and and to that audience, the Avengers, as a, as as the original British TV show Avengers, it meant nothing to them. It was just it was a fresh it was a fresh um, concept. So. This was a similar thing, I guess, but it just didn't land. It didn't land. And being in the same year as the, being nominated um, in the same year as the Blair Witch Project was nominated as the worst movie, which is like that's not aged well, has it for him? You know, <laughs> the, the horror movie that sort of like revitalized horror in the late. Yeah, yeah. a lot. And that's why I feel like a lot of these are reactionary in some points. Like uh, Friday the Thirteenth as well. The first Friday the Thirteenth. So. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it with yes, years have gone by. Some of these movies have been reevaluated and said they're the best. I mean, we didn't mention it, but Scarface was nominated for one Razzie as, yeah. as worst director. Because at the time, everyone was very cynical, saying, actually, we don't like the violence. We don't like the sex. We don't like all the cocaine and drug stuff. We don't like all the fact that all the Cuban-Americans are seem to look like criminals and so on and so forth. And more importantly, they don't like Brian De Palma. Because he gets nominated so much in the 80s. Dressed to Kill, Body Double, um, obviously the infamous Bonfire of the Vanities later on he was nominated for. They really don't like Brian De Palma, which immediately puts them against me because I love Brian De Palma. So, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Can I now just say, now we're moving on to, now we're going to 2000. Can we actually now talk about a bit more about John Travolta? Because in 2000, it's it's Battlefield Earth. It is Battlefield Earth, yeah. Because uh, Travolta has been nominated on and off throughout the eighties, you know, in forgettable movies. He's 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 his career path is ones of ups and downs. <laughs> and we're currently in a down, I think, but um, you know, he will rise again. You know, like the Phoenix, he will rise again and then fall down this is the again. Period where he was rising, and he'd really done, obviously, done Pulp Fiction late nineties. He'd done, in, in mid nineties. He'd done Get Shorty, which was a big hit. Yeah. So, he was in a position of power again where he could control what he did. But I think, mm. I think so he did. Even, even, even in 2000, I think we, we know it now about Travolta, but even as early as then, I think everybody sensed that he'd already got this sort of roller coaster career and that he was on a downward spiral. And, um, yeah. and, and the, the, the mixture of that with the whole sort of Scientology angle of this movie mm. would killed it from the start. You know, before the cameras started rolling, it was going to get a ratty nomination. And then when we all saw it, I think it was a shoe-in as the winner. So, Yeah, yeah totally agreed with that. Like I said, everything's a Dutch angle for some particular reason, which fascinates me. Um, the fact that it is very much a Scientology... In a weird way, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a Scientology propaganda movie or just a story based on, on you know, L. Ron Hubbard yeah, little yeah. pieces. And But but, it, I, but I think the, the press and the Razzies and any other interested parties would tie those two things together, you know, to make capital out of it. So Plus, the same time as John Travolta in Dreadlocks. So, um, <laughs> instant win. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Instant win. <laughs> yeah. well, as I say, we've already talked about pop stars. We get Madonna nominated the next year. We get Britney Spears in Crossroads. I, I, and then we start getting into some fairly forgettable movies from, yeah. from now on, really. We get Giggly, which I think, Daryl, you watched. Is it Giggly? Yeah, um, G- well, it's, it's, pro- it's, it's pronounced Gigli. And uh, ben, Affleck, ben Affleck makes a point in the film. This is one of the things that's so wrong with that movie. He's got this big thing in the film where he keeps telling people that my, my name's Gigli. It rhymes with really. And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> <That's> it doesn't. Not- <laughs> 
<laughs> Geely does not rhyme with really, Ben. So, uh, um, no, it's, it's such a dreadful film. It just sort of lays there. There's no... I mean, this this is like Hollywood's golden couple at the time, and they've got no on-screen charisma whatsoever, which makes you wonder what their charisma off-screen was like, because it's probably <laughs> exactly. the same. You know. Martin Brest, who was sort of, you know, red-hot, he was making a film every three or four years. Yeah. He'd, done, he'd done Beverly Hills Cop, he'd done Midnight Run, he'd done Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black. You know, he's, 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 he's sort of hot by Hollywood standards, and he's sort of making films when he wants to on his own terms and he does this and it's got the feel of something that could turn into Beverly Hills Cop or could turn into a midnight run except for the fact that the whole point of the movie is that unlike those films where you've got a sort of road movie elements or sort of chase um, scenes in the streets and things like that the whole point of this is that they're shut indoors for, for about 80% of the film. <laughs> um, and, and it's not what Martin Brest does. Um, there's, there's a scene about two thirds of the way through where they introduce a new character and you think, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to send it all off on a whole new dynamic. And she comes on and she immediately slashes her wrists and I'm thinking, is, and I'm, I'm thinking, is she there as the audience identification figure? <laughs> <laughs> there is one thing I know about the movie. I haven't seen it because, you know, I want to stay sane. But um, there is, um, I know there has one very questionable thing where the whole point of it is that Jennifer Lopez in this movie, that she's a lesbian. Ooh. But Ben Affleck being a straight man, says, oh, yeah, I could change you. So it's just, oh, dear. That is extra questionable on top of that. It's really queer. Easy. It's 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 even more sort of uh, sort of woolly and very very sort of obscure and they never really quite explain what's going on and and, <laughs> and whether it is it's you're, you're talking about it as though it's it's a traditional sort of oh the, the hunky male sort of turns the lesbian sort of thing it's it's it's, it's 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 not actually like that and I can't really say what it is like because. <laughs> People sort of say things to each other, and I'm thinking that's terrible dialogue. Have I just missed three lines? Have they torn? Have they torn six pages out of the script or something? And then I, I, I just don't know what happens in those scenes. And and um, it, it sounds it, like you're having a mental breakdown. I think we need. I think uh, you're having a breakdown. Breathe. You've got to. You've got to watch the film to to, to sort of see it. And uh, I mean, you're you're talking now as though it's all very sort of clear court and it's all obvious what happens if you saw the movie you'd come away scratching your head about it so Fantastic. yeah the, the whole sort of sexual orienta- uh, orientation thing is is just i think i think martin breast sense that this is going to be so difficult for me to handle that i'm just not going to bother you know it, <laughs> it, has, it has got the feel that he didn't turn up for those two days you know and, maybe uh, one of those things where it's like we've seen chasing amy and ben affleck plays a straight guy who gets involved with a lesbian in that one so maybe that's ben affleck's thing oh, maybe that's no. his star vehicle he just <laughs> no. straight. no that's it's not a good one that's not a good look yeah, ben. Yeah. Not in, <laughs> indeed it's not no no Terrible film and a, a highly deserving winner. The clincher on that is, as I say, Martin Brest was one of Hollywood's sort of golden boys. It had been for 20 years. He he hasn't worked since. Oh, my God, he hasn't. Maybe that's a deliberate decision. Maybe he's punishing himself. Okay, so we move on to 2003 where we get, I, I guess this is the first time a Hollywood star turned up at the ceremony to collect yes. her award. This, yeah. one is, this one's for Catwoman. 
this is secretly one of my favorite rising nominations and the reason why is not because the movie's great the movie is campy as all hell and is the whole point of having sharon stone uh becoming literally rock hard by wearing makeup that we're not going to talk into that deliberate situation or the fact that she is uh or the fact that catwoman becomes catwoman because halle berry dies by falling out of a sewer and then gets revived by mystical by mystical egyptian cats that's a thing but it's the first time ever that an actress or anyone really actually bothered to show up to the thing and collect their razzie. And on top of that, gave them both, like, say, look, and gave them, I would argue, the speech, which is a great eight minute, 10 minute speech. If you haven't watched it, watch it. Where for the first four minutes, she's literally poking the fun out of the movie and doing it in a very mocking way, like very funny, just very what the Razzies want, right? And then the other four minutes is her being humble and saying like, actually, my my mum my mum rose me rose me up and she told me that um, uh, the only way to be a good winner is to also be a good loser, where you have to get criticism, understand them and grow. You don't be a, don't be a sourpuss, basically. She's literally coming in, to hear and she goes over and says like well actually i respect your feedback but then at the very end she goes and says and i pray to god i never have to come into this dumpster fire again and just walks off feeling proud well done Halle Berry. well done she also names and shames like a lot of other people responsible as well like in the film she she just she does a shout out for everyone like the director she's like goes i don't know what you were saying but because he's like he was he was french wasn't he, the director yeah, i yeah, never uh, knew what you were saying yeah yeah. One name, <laughs> also just one name because he's so special. Uh, yeah, it, it brings like, oh, here's my here's my agent. She brings her agent out and says like, next time, tell me nice, tell me not to accept every script and stuff like that. It's brilliant. I I quite like it. Mm. I'm going to throw in there. I quite like it. I mean, it's it's terrible, and it has it's it's a movie in search of a, of, a, of a character. You know, she, 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 her character is that she's really attractive. They, they, they make this film called Catwoman and they really, 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 really go out of their way to, to, to prevent it from being the Catwoman that we're all expecting from Batman. You know, there, yeah. there, are, there are absolutely no links in the movie. They're not even in Gotham. No, no. I think it looks fantastic. The director's sort of known for that. He'd, he'd made a great film called uh, Vidoc in, in France with the Gérard Depardieu about five years before, which is fabulous, visually extraordinary. And this has got a lot of the same sort of look to it. But, um, yeah, the, the, the characters and, and, the, and the, I mean, the plot's so clichéd. As, as you say, it's got these extraordinary things about uh, sewer pipes and this bizarre makeup concoction and things, you know, and the cats. What what it has got is um, uh, it's got Frances Conroy and and she she seems to make a speciality of giving really really great performances in really terrible movies and then you've got Sharon Stone who just sort of really tries to drag the whole thing up by the bootstraps and is fabulous but yeah other than that it, it did nothing for me and the main the main thing is. It's not Catwoman. It's a Catwoman. It's a Catwoman and one that really likes catnip, which is one of my favourite <laughs> scenes in the whole movie. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. That's so, so terrible. She just, the, the, the sniffing of the catnip going around going, that's catnip. And just like, oh, oh no. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's so good. I mean, yeah, let's, 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 let's move on. Otherwise, we're just going to start talking about catnip over and over again. Um, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Because there's... After this, is there anything else that stands out as a particularly interesting 
uh, nomination or win. Can I just say, this is the fall. This is the top, we start really seeing the fall of M. Night Shyamalan. You're seeing a pattern oh, yes. here. Yeah. For example, uh, you get to see, well, you got The Lady in the Water in 2006, which is literally just an F you to all the critics anyway. So this is perfect. Um, it then goes into The Happening, which is, becomes very, very clear as well. And it's not, it, which I'm surprised didn't win. Really, I think the although well, the happening is one of those movies that now it's become so bad is good. You watch it, you get confused. It's 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 Mark Wilbur, it's, it's Mark Wilbur talking to plants, so you can't say no to that. Um, and then later on, we've got then the last the, the last Airbender, and you can really start to see by this point is like we're not even entirely sure whether whether it's just poking fun because it's M Night Shyamalan or whether because it, those are terrible movies. I would argue they're actually because they're just really bad. Sadly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the happening didn't win because the Love Guru is so uniquely, um, uh, uniquely positioned to be to be the Razzie winner that year. The Love Guru is the first movie he's made in a few years, you know, since the Austin Powers booms, and nobody likes Mike Myers in Hollywood. You know, that's it is a let's kick Mike Myers. Yeah, that's that's the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and there's another Shyamalan uh, title later on in uh, After Earth. So yeah, four four nominees in in a few years. But I, he's 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 one of my most hated people in Hollywood. Anyway, I, <laughs> I don't even like the films that everybody liked. I I hate Unbreakable. I hate The Sixth Sense. So for me, they ought to have been Raddy nominated too. But uh, wow. so I'm I'm I'm, I'm I'm so glad to see that his career has gone on this incredible downturn. You are you officially a panelist for for the Razzies now? Is this what wish you're trying to say to us? <laughs> I, I wish I was because he'd be on there every year. So wow. we also um, we also see them dipping down into into the independent scene, into the lower budget scene, with a couple of nominations for Uwe Ball. Yeah, uh, during this, yeah. yes, yeah. Well, although I, th- I think the thing with Boll is he's he sort of self-promoted himself into right. contention. Here. Yeah. It's all it's almost like somebody pitching for an Oscar. He's pitching for a Razzie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, he wants to be recognised. In this case, he wants to be recognised as being the worst, basically. And you know, because it, it was a whole thing for him for the longest yeah. time. He, there was one time he actually had. He asks his critics again to a boxing ring so he can punch his their lights out. Yeah, so yeah. he's famously known for being, well, a bit of a dick. So being the Razzies just is up his street. It makes sense to me. I think one of the things that have occurred to me is that they've they they don't really nominate kids movies apart from the odd one mm. there. They don't you know regularly nominate movies, and most kids movies are terrible. Used to just just as part of the general genre. Like, I, I I kind of think I think maybe because maybe because it's like oh it's designed for kids kind of situation yeah. and which I think again is like punching the bar too low even a different level as well they they appreciate the different things than than sane people in many cases um so like the emoji movie winning feels like I don't know it feels like you're punching at a, yeah. a, a, a it is it's, it's a it's a it is it's a low low target I mean something like Mac and me back in the 80s is is a different matter because yeah. I think that's not being nominated because it's a bad kids movie there's a whole other agenda about that so uh, I mean the emoji movie has uh, Sir Patrick Stewart as a talking poop 
So um, <laughs> you can't not feel a little something for that. <laughs> my, my, my son loved it when he when he saw it. And, you know, he just because it, it follows a plot of most kids' movies. You know, the journey plot and you know saving the day and becoming friends with people again. You know, that's and, and roll credits. You know, yeah, and it, it hits all those things and with lots of product placement as well. So you know, it's it's it's, it's exactly a perfect Hollywood kids' movie. And then so that stands out for me. Uh, and Gotti again, we get the return of John Travolta. In the last couple of years, we've had Gotti and the spectacular, Mwah, the golden goose of his terrible performance. Just when you think Razzies have got nothing left to offer, John Travolta says, "Hold my beer," and he <laughs> dumps in with both feet. And 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 you know Nicholas Cage didn't get a nomination for uh, Army of One a couple of years ago, which was a similarly out there thing. But mm. John Travolta goes full length with the the fanatic. Um, I, I assume everyone's seen the fanatic. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have. I have. It's yeah. wonderful. It is. It is all the wrong choices <laughs> in yeah. a movie. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. also not only all the wrong choices, but powered by someone. Who'd never directed a movie? Who'd never really directed a movie before? Who's already has been in one industry and wants to try and kick his way out of it? Fred Durst directed a movie. No, no, no. I will take his. He's directed more than this. He's directed three or four movies now. Fred Durst, lead singer of Limp Bizkit, has got enough movies under his belt to legitimately say he's a movie director. To say he's an auteur. Well, he's definitely an auteur in the sense that you know auteurs have distinctive things that make their movies feel like only they could have made them to me and the he moment, is <laughs> well well the moment the moment i, I kind of not gave up but the moment i said like oh boy i'm in for a treat is when they're driving the car in the fanatic and then suddenly limp biscuit turns on as like, and he's talking to the kid who's never heard limp biscuit because limp biscuit are flipping ancient now and no one would know about them and then you got the dad driving around going hey listen limp biscuit this is awesome he's singing along to limp biscuit yeah, song yeah. going like Fred, Freddy, Freddy, buddy, stop it. You want to think that that's irony, but nothing else in the movie. No, no, it, it ain't irony. irony. It ain't. No, there's, I mean, Travolta's performance, though, is spectacular. We, we've got to say that the Fanatic didn't actually win the, the Razzie for, for picture. Travolta won for, for worst actor. Cats was the was the, the, the picture winner. But uh, but the Fanatic's more interesting to talk about. This is true. I mean, it's basically the, the, the standard sort of Stan-type plot and, and presumably Durst had sort of been through something like this where you've got this sort of obsessed autistic fan who's sort of on your doorstep uh, every, every hour of every day. Yeah, your Travolta's haircut is extraordinary. His dress sense is extraordinary. Um, so so, so a, a, Travolta's playing this weird haircutted, weird shirted, um, stuttering, um, crazy fan. So you've got that element of the plot. He's got no social skills whatsoever. And yet, yeah, he's got a couple of friends. How? Hot teenage friends, I would like to say. Not just yeah, uh, this fifty-year-old man with no social skills, so friends creepy. with like lots of really attractive twenty-something. If if he if he was just mates with comic book guy, which which appears to be the case, that'd be one thing. But yeah, teenage girl as his best friend, very very odd. But the the crowning glory of Travolta's performance 
And this is a guy who's got no social skills, can hardly have a conversation or talk to anyone. We suddenly find out that he's an entertainer on Hollywood Boulevard in the evenings. And his act consists of dressing up as a Victorian policeman, talking to wearing a sort of twirly handlebar moustache and talking to tourists about Jack the Ripper in the voice of Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. And, and, and at one, the, the, his best line in that sort of Cockney guise is where he, he, he sort of looks past him and sort of goes, is that the quine? <laughs> <laughs> what is even that? It's also just so, that, that, that there's multiple levels of his insanity with this. It's just the idea of how tone deaf everything is. Mm. Like someone, anyone else, any, anyone in any production, I would argue, would have sat there and going, that's tasteless, that's inappropriate, yeah. Yeah. that's rubbish, that's everything. And so I'm glad, as a bad movie fan, that we've got one that I will say will stand the test of time oh, yeah. and will be watched forever and ever because we don't, because looking at like, you mentioned it, looking at some of the ones from the last sort of five to 10 years, <laughs> other than let's say a small handful, there's none that's going to live beyond just the note. No one's going to go back and watch movie 43, right? No one's going to watch that. Is anyone going to really remember watching Battleship? No, but The Fanatic? Mwah! Gold in the Oscars over the years, we and we've talked about this on 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 a couple of podcasts recently. You know, Rocky won in '76, but we're all saying, "Oh, should Taxi Driver have won? Should all the presidents medical?" The fanatic is like the rowdy version of that. It got beaten by cats, and we're rooting for it and saying, "No, no, the rowdy's got it wrong. Fanatic should have been worst film." Now, I think you, the you, most you, interesting thing about the fanatic is it, uh, the tone death thing stands up, but even like. If you're a fan of Fred Durst and you're watching this movie, <laughs> there are people out there who are Limp Biscuit fans. You're watching that. This movie basically says, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you, my fans. Yeah. You're all weirdos. I've got loads of experience of all you weirdos coming up to me in, in comic book shops and music stores, and you're all weird and horrible and you, you ought to die. That's literally what this movie's saying. Yeah. Now, in, in, in a dramatic sense in this film, then, there's there's actually no one to root for because we hate yeah. Tra- we hate Travolta and we hate Devon Sawa. And and there's 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 so what what's the point of the film? There's these two characters going up against each other, and we don't like either of them. <laughs> out of all the out of everything else from the last 10 years or so, there's not much anything that stands out. I feel like maybe, maybe it's because. I don't know what it means. Are we saying that Hollywood's actually making better movies? Yeah. Well, as we've mentioned, the biggie that the Razzies missed was The Room. And I think it just went under their radar. I don't I don't think it sort of caught on as a bad film straight away, did it? And I think because of that, it wasn't publicised. And because they're a, sort of, they're a sort of year-on-year award, like the Oscars, they missed it. So we've galloped through the history of the whole, um, the whole shebang there. Is it worth it? It's a bit of fun. It's um, and and I like the fact, as Johan's been saying, it's it's great that that the um, the, the celebrities and the stars are sort of embracing it a little bit now, and they're sort of all in on the joke. I I say you know it's harmless. I like the fact that it's there. And again, as you said earlier, um, it's a sort of counter to the Oscars. You know, it's it's as daft as the Oscars are, isn't it? You know. I mean, you know, if 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 you if you're questioning whether we need the Razzies, you're questioning whether we need the Oscars, Adam. 
That's I, I am questioning that. <laughs> wow. I am questioning whether we need the Oscars. I mean, Very as much nice. as the cinema programming in me says, shut up, Adam, keep quiet, because every January, February, we get a big boost <laughs> of awareness and we get loads of ticket sales. The other side of me is saying, like, but most of these Oscar pit films, that you've, you've forgotten two, three years and down the line. And yeah. invariably, they're not the best movie of the year. Yeah, the ones that are usually the best movies, or the ones we remember, are nowhere near nominated as much, I think. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. the cult ones. They're the ones you go back to. They're the silly ones. They're the ones who never get nominated for anything. And they're the movies that you go back for your DVD collection and go, actually, I really like this little, little bit of silly trash. I love this. I prefer watching that over than whatever one best picture four years ago. That's probably dated terribly. Uh, let's just go things like Crash, for example. I feel like now... The Razzies should be re-evaluated in terms of, I think they need to restructure things a bit. They need to spice things up a bit. They're really hitting on the low bar. And I re- I think they need to start either re-evaluating it or changing it so that it's not, it, it, it focuses on the really bad movies and the movies that are gathering a bit more interest rather than just going for easier targets or going for just what seems to just be, well, we're just going to say what the, we're just going to follow along what the critics say. Be a little bit angsty. Be a little bit more adventurous. Show, introduce people to these terrible movies. Because if you can do that, wonderful. It'll make my job a hell of a lot easier. So... (laughs) That's that's all well that's all well and good, but you you know that their way of doing that would be to follow the Oscars and have ten nominees again, which I'm not sure we want. In terms of bad movie uh, like awards, I would just love to watch one of like really bad cult movies. Uh, that's that's all I'm interested in. I feel like if you were going to re- if this was supposed to be a bad movie award show, it needs to either be it needs to it needs to it needs to change in order to properly mm. go yeah. for it. The, the thing you seem to be suggesting there, Ed, is is almost like a sort of uh, a Sundance version of the Raddies. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, that'd be brilliant. Because the thing is, these like cult movies, they do develop their own kind of audience and they are respected in in a way. So it would be good if they took notice of that kind of thing, you know? I think it's, I think it's one of those difficult things that a lot of these cult bad movies that we've been talking about take years to marinate. This is true. And, uh, yeah. and it's not got quite the buzz of this is this year's it's, worst. It's not movie. instant. Is I mean, it? No. some come ready farmed in like the, the fanatic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yes. Others take a few years to to to, to marinate. You don't you don't know if a bad movie is going to become a cult classic until about five, maybe even ten years down the line when people are talking about it, when people rediscover it, when people just with, with a new mindset look at it and go like, this is going to be great. If we're going to do a proper bad movie cult thing, it would have been something that would be like, yeah, you can nominate now. We've got to wait. We have to, you can go for about five to 10 years. Let's let linger. And then you can be nominated. And then by that point, no one, anyone, everyone in the cast and crew don't really care unless, unless you're like troll two or, or the room that do that. The cast are so embracing of it now. And they will just go on like road shows and, and and do that kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think then we've done it. <laughs> we've yeah, through, my God. Through, um, 40 years of, of bad movies. 
yeah, I want to thank Ed and uh, Johan for joining us on this. Yeah, thanks, uh, guys. Yeah. Trip. Um, we've made some of the heavy lifting a lot lighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we helped. Uh, <laughs> um, again, as ever, thank you, Daryl, for putting the same amount of care and attention into these movies that you put into the movies that we're talking about on a, on a regular basis. In, into, uh, into real movies. Yeah, into yeah, real yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, 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 I've loved, loved this. I think it's been a really good session. So. And finally, I want to thank Quad and the BFI <laughs> uh, for, uh, for supporting the Cinelit podcast. Uh, sorry, guys, uh, this month's been a bit bad one <laughs> in the sense of the quality of movies. Um, but it's all about broadening people's tastes and broadening people's experience of cinema and how much broad does your taste need to be to embrace Howard the Duck, Catwoman and the Fanatic. Uh, what a triple bill. Okay, thank you very much and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.